really justice what is happening here. Um, we want to go there. So welcome to the exchange. This is our last one for like the, until the new year, okay? So don't worry. We'll come back to this in the new year. Um, but it's worth, it's worth going through because I actually, what I love about the story, the Gibeonites who essentially experienced genocide, there's a few, there's a remnant that remained, they have to walk through this pain and God's like, I remember, I remember. I see what you walk through. Don't think I forgot your history. Don't think I forgot what you went through. And I'm going to do, I'm going to remind David of this to seek reconciliation to some extent. The beautiful thing to me is that we serve a God who remembers. God's like, I remember. Don't think I forgot. Even though a lot of years have passed from Saul's kingdom to David's kingdom. But I remember. This is worth us exploring and talking about. Yes? Um, So I want to read this, actually. This is John Woodhouse. Uh, He talks about how whenever we come to a a passage of scripture like this, here are some of our thoughts, and I want to just address some of those. Here's what John Woodhouse says, long quote, but we'll read this and then go to our text. He says, Very often it is the horror of human suffering, and so much of it, that is given as the reason when a thoughtful person refuses to believe in God. An impossible contradiction is felt between an all-powerful God who's supposed to be good, and the unbearable things that occur under his eye. Answers are not simple. The denial of God's existence is a simple but hardly helpful answer. Atheism solves the problem of evil by replacing it with the problem of goodness. If there is no God, then goodness is a matter of opinion. You have solved the problem of suffering and sadness by denying it is a problem. If there is no God, and if goodness is a matter of opinion, then the awful suffering of which we have been thinking is just a fact, not really a problem. Hope you're following that. A more realistic answer has to face uncomfortable truths. One of them is the righteous wrath of God. We would all like God to be comfortable. He is not. He is good, but his goodness is not determined by ideas that we find cozy. God's goodness is actually terrifying. (laughs) Maybe that doesn't help. I hope it helps. (laughs) There is a reality, obviously, um, if there is no God. Is there such a thing as good? Is there such a thing as evil? You're just, you're creating new problems, new issues. There's something about God's goodness that he has to address sin. Because God is good, he cannot just overlook sin. Because God is good, sin has to be addressed in some capacity. This is one of those passages where we're not going to really understand the outcome they chose it probably doesn't make sense to us. The Gibeonites have been wrong, but we're going to see Saul's sons die in light of that. The reason why I want us to, to look at this passage today is because I really do feel like, just even from reading this, I think we need to hear that God remembers the pain you walk through and hasn't forgotten it. So whatever that looks like, don't think that, man, that was years ago and how come it's never been dealt with? God dealt with this years later. It, didn't, it wasn't dealt with in the time that they thought or they wanted. And God does see and God does remember and God does awaken people to that reality and to that truth like he does with David. So I want to read this passage. Can we do that? 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Here we go. Let's read kind of the context of what's happening. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Again, we don't really know at what point this took place. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, we'll talk about that, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the power of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us 
and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he, David, said, uh, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king, David, he, he spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them. Between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, um, whom she bore to Saul, uh, Armoni and Mephibosheth. That was Uncle Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai. Great names if you're looking for baby names, uh, by the way. The Maholothite. Uh, anyways, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven sons of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Verse 10. Then Rizbah, this is the mom of the two sons, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them uh, by day or the beasts of the field by night. Their sons' bodies are just hanging there. When David was told what Rizbah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them. And on the day the Philistines killed Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they were buried the bones, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. The famine stops. Let's pray and look at this text. <laughs> Jesus, we just want to thank you that we can um, go through your word where it seems maybe confusing, um, overwhelming. Lord, we see something like this where we grieve with the mother over her sons. We we just think of the, the genocide that took place in the Gibeonites and what they experienced. Lord, we, we look at all of this to say, we, we are thankful we serve a God who sees our pain. We are thankful we serve a God who took on our pain. That God, you know what it's like to suffer personally firsthand. That you know what it's like to lose a son. You know what it's like to experience the pain yourself. And uh, God, we just ask that you would speak, that you would move, that you would open our eyes, God, if there's some unreconciled things that are happening, if there's some famine in the land, Lord, that you would open our eyes, help us wake up and see what it is you're doing. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, my son right now, Micah, he's seven. He's, he's currently in wrestling one or two days a week, kind of varies on my schedule, but he has wrestling one or two days a week, and it's, it's actually fun. It's fun to watch. It's fun to go to it. Um, you know, it's weird to see he's, he's scrawny. He's thin. He's scrawny. He's not very good. Most of the kids are older. Some are younger, but most are older. And it's kind of fun for me. I don't know. Maybe this is bad. Dads might get it, but just to see him lose. It's good. It's really good. Um, it's good because I get to see what is he like when he loses. Because when, you know, at home, sometimes he loses a board game. He's like, ah, flips the board game. You're like, that's not how we lose. But when you have a kid who's stronger than you, and he gets you to headlock and like submits you down to the ground. 
And then you re- like you want to fight back, but you realize he just beat me and I can't fight back. It's kind of great. And so it's been fun to watch him, like, you know, the, the coach hold up his hand at the end during a wrestling match and like he puts his head down. And I, I'm actually proud of him. I'm like, dude, you're losing so much better. <laughs> this might sound terrible, but this is so good. Like you're losing so much better and I'm so proud of you. And it's just fun to kind of watch and see that dynamic. And his coach is incredible. And they try to, you know, uh, his coach is a believer who he's just awesome. Um, years ago, I wrestled his coach. I can't even say the word wrestle. Um, this coach was at one point in time, I think he was in, he was in the 96 Olympics for wrestling. Okay. So, uh, he's like, Hey, let's get on the mat. And like, you know, wrestle. I'm like, I don't think that's what we're going to do. Is it? And we go out and he's like being nice. I'm like, you know, trying to move him. I don't know. I, I, I'll explain. I did wrestling for like half a year. And I'm like trying to do, I have nothing. It literally, I felt like a child wrestling my dad. Like he's like a little boy wrestling a man. It was so weird to be a full grown adult trying to wrestle another man. And you go, I have zero strength. Like I'm not doing anything. He literally got me down and he invented, I think his own move. And some of you might even know this guy, but he invented his own move. I think it's called the gator roll where basically every time he takes your arm and puts it around your neck and every time he rolls, like you get dizzy, he, every time he rolls, you're rolling with him and your arm gets tighter and tighter around your neck and he basically chokes you out with your own arm. It's great. It's fun. You should have the experience. So fun. He's like, he's like basically tapped me out with my own arm. I'm like, that was not, that was not fun. That was awful. Um, and it made me get flashbacks, watch my son, seen his coach. I did wrestling in seventh grade. Uh, there's an opportunity between PE and wrestling. I'm like, you know what? Let's just do wrestling. In seventh grade, um, you know, my middle school was not sixth grade. It's just seventh and eighth grade. That was middle school. And so I was like, I'm younger. I would graduate at 17. I was younger for my age. I'm in seventh grade. And I didn't really realize at Calvary Costa Mesa at that point in time, I just wasn't aware that every wrestler was like a state champion wrestler. Um, we had one of the greatest West wrestling programs. If you go to our school, it's like this, we owned the 90s and early 2000s for like state championships. Um, I mean, they were, I think they're called the Jesus Boys. They had like nicknames and like, everyone's like, oh, the Jesus Boys, but they would, they would whoop your butt. Like they're scary. And so I'm in seventh grade, I'm in wrestling, and it was one of those things where I just was like Micah, just being destroyed every single day. It was awful. And there's this one kid named Nick, Big Nick. I think he, like, he just liked me. It was nice. Like, he knew this wasn't my environment. I didn't realize that everyone was trained since they were like three years old and was a killer. I didn't know. So Big Nick was like, hey, man, I got you. I got you. And it was one of the, when Nick wasn't there, by the way, those are the worst days at wrestling. It's awful. But when Nick was there, we did different wrestling drills and games and like snake in the grass. And they were like, oh, like, you know, let's take the easy one out first. They just destroy me, destroy me. But Nick would basically, eventually over time, he'd always like be next to me or I'd be next to him. I don't know how it went. But Nick would be the one who'd basically get my back. He'd get them before they got me. Or if I got destroyed, he would destroy them back. And after a while, I was like, this is the best feeling in the world. Like this Nick guy saved my butt over and over again. And it was great when he'd look at me, he'd see someone cut at me, and he's like, yo, I got you. And I remember thinking, like, that is the best feeling in the world. I got you. Not know, knowing that you're not alone. The reason why I bring that up, and really the, the title today is, is simply that idea of, I got you. I got you. I think it's nice to know that the Lord's like, hey, I got you. I, I see what you're going through, but you're not alone. I got you. I don't know if you've ever felt forgotten, if you've ever felt like someone missed your birthday, missed an anniversary, missed something important in your life. And you just feel that feeling of like, how do they not notice? How do they not see? How do they not care? Maybe you felt forgotten at one point in time. This is how the Gibeonites felt. And God is basically waking David up to this. And David, God is saying to David, David, there's an issue with the Gibeonites and, and the Israel. And they need to know I haven't forgotten them. That's what I love about the story. God's like, I, I, I got you. I haven't forgotten you. And I want us to really take that in. Just reading the story alone. There's always an issue between Saul and the people of Israel versus the Gibeonites, who they were supposed to protect. And Saul committed massacre. I mean, these are some of the things you hear about, like in Rwanda, like this genocide on a huge scale. 
And you're like, what is going on? And God is basically remind, like waking David up to this and saying, I haven't forgotten their pain. I remember them. Go deal with this. So before we move on from anything, I'm just very thankful we serve a God who's like, I got you. I haven't forgotten. I'm with you. You're not alone. But what does reconciliation look like? And it was painful. So here's the two thoughts today, how we're going to break down our text. Number one is this. Uh, we're going to look at discerning the moment. Discerning the moment. That's what David's doing. It's actually brilliant to me. And then we're going to look at dealing with sin. So discerning the moment, dealing with sin. This is kind of the, how the text is broken up. So let's just read verse one. Let's read again. Verse one, 2 Samuel tw- uh, 21. There was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. This is not uncommon. This is, there's a famine in the land year after year. And it says, and then David sought. He, he inquires of the Lord. He seeks the Lord. This is beautiful of David. David's like, this is not a normal famine. Famines happen. There are dry seasons. That happens. But this is different. This is a different famine year after year. It's interesting. It took him a few years. It took him three years to kind of wake up to that. But nonetheless, I'm so proud of David going, this is not your normal famine. This appears to be judgment from God. So God, why? This is profound of David. I, I, got, I got to give David credit for this. We're actually told famines were a sign of judgment from God. In Deuteronomy 28, 24, it says, The Lord will change the rain on your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. There's a curse for those who were basically disobeying God. This is the, the, the I'll bless those who bless you. I'll bless you if you obey. If you disobey, there'll be cursings. One of the curses was there's a famine in the land. So David's going, there's a famine, and this must be a curse from God. This is different. Now, I want to kind of clarify a couple of things. Not every certain environmental or weather-related thing is a curse from God. I, I would say probably most of them are not. And I think that sometimes we can overcorrect this. But... It seems as if at least in the Old Testament and how the history of Israel worked, God so often used pestilences. He used, you know, insects. He used famine. He used, dry, he used different things to kind of wake his people up. And I want to look at that. Now, it's not always a result of sin. Like, we know this in John 9. Remember in John 9, you have the blind guy that Jesus is like, disciples are like, hey, Jesus, why is he blind? His sin or his parents' sin? Jesus is like, neither. No one's sin. Just so the glory of God can be seen. It's not always a result of that. We just got to be careful. That can be used in extreme. However, it should wake us up a little bit. This is what David's doing. Like, he's like, this is not normal. Like something must be going on because this is year after year and David's not the Lord. I can't, I, again, I can't move on from this because there should be certain things in our life that wakes us up. Like what's really going on here? Why do I feel this famine in the land? Why do I feel this famine in my life? Why do I feel this dry season in my life? maybe something's off. Like we should consider this. In Job chapter 10, uh, verse two, Job says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. He's like, I know you're contending against me. I want to know why. God, why do I feel this? You know, T.S. Eliot, the great poet of his day, says this, listen to this, this is profound. The spiritual condition of a society is at the root of everything else that takes place. Moral corruption results in a cultural wasteland. Maybe there is a more intimate interconnection between the way people live 
and the kind of world they live in than we commonly suppose. He's basically saying, look, if there's something off, maybe we should check our own moral corruption. Maybe there's something in us we should address. Again, I can't really move on from this because there's something about God using famines in the land to always wake up the people. There's a famine in the land, and God's like, wake up. I need you to see what's happening. Again, um, let me say this. If you are a believer in Jesus and following Jesus, you will have dry seasons. There is no doubt about that. You know, I've had people like almost say, like, assume. You, like, it's been so nice to get to know people walking with the Lord 30, 40, 50 years because all of them have had dry seasons. All of them have had f- seasons where it just feels like it's a drought. And this is the idea where it's like, yes, in your Christian life, you will walk by faith and not by sight. And faith is like a muscle. We have to view faith that way. Faith is like a muscle that must be exercised. If you exercise it, it will grow. If you don't exercise it, you'll see the muscle shrink. And this idea of faith being like a muscle being used in the seasons of dry seasons, where I don't sense the Lord, I don't feel the Lord, I feel this dryness in my life, don't feel like that's an uncommon thing. That, don't think, I'm the only one who's ever gone through a dry season. Don't, don't think that. I have, we all have, we all do. In those moments, you're like, okay, Lord, I need to walk by faith, not by sight. I need to exercise this muscle. Also, is there, what is, is there a reason why? Know what's crazy about Job's story? I just kind of briefly mentioned, but we kind of know Job's story. We kind of get that behind the scenes between God and Satan. And that con- Job has no clue what's going on. He's never given that. He's never given, God's like, you want to know why? Who can create these behemoth-like monsters? Like, what? Job is never given really a reason. He's just saying, um, Job, you got to understand that there's a revelation of God and your view of God is too little. And you got to know, you'll never maybe know why, but you got to know God in the process. This idea that it's, you'll never get an explanation, but you'll get a revelation of God. And that happens a lot. I might not ever get an explanation, but hopefully I get a revelation of God. That's what we see in scriptures. We don't see God really answering the why questions as much as we would like, because his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. But we do get a lot of times a revelation. God's like, but you'll get me in the process. You'll get a bigger view, bigger perspective of me. There's a famine in the land, and David is wise enough to say, why, Lord? What's go-? He inquired of the Lord. The idea was, um, actually, the tabernacle, remember, the Ark, of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem. We don't really know when this took place, though, in David's life, but the tabernacle actually was in Gibeah, where the issue was with the Gibeonites. The tabernacle was in Gibeah. David most likely went to Gibeah to inquire of the Lord, and God's like, I'm glad you're here. The problem's here. There's something about that to me. David probably had to spend time, leave the palace, energy, money, make a sacrifice. He's inquiring of the Lord. That is not some small look over, pass over kind of phrase. That's like David had to do the work to deal with the issue. Let me say this. We will have to do the work to deal with the issue. If there is an issue or there's a dryness, listen, there are seasons in my life or times in my life where like, you know what, I need maybe middle of the day, I need to like, I had some morning time, but I maybe need like a lunch time. Hey Lord, I'm like tired and I need to go to the Lord for five minutes, 10 minutes. And it's good. It's good on my lunch. It's good. It's a good walk. It's a good, like I'm gonna go outside and go for a walk. I do that a lot. And that's good. I need that. But there are other times where I might need to give the Lord more than five minutes. There are gonna be times in your life where it's like, Lord, I need to get away for a day, a night, a weekend, a few days, a month. This can not get away, but it's gonna be a part of my life. I'm gonna have to press into the Lord. One of the most life-changing seasons of my life was around 18 years old, going to Oregon and just for a week spending time with God, like in this cabin, going, God, what are you doing? What do you want to do? And it was more than just like a five-minute devotion. It's like, I, I kind of, I don't want to leave until I have a direction, until I have clarity. 
The reason why I'm bringing that up is there will be seasons in your life you're going to say, Lord, I'm going to have to give the Lord more than two minutes in the morning. If I can encourage you guys with something today, is give the Lord some time. Seek the Lord. David's going, there's a famine in the land, and he sought the Lord. I have to, like, look at that and go, he spent time, energy, money. He's like, I need to figure out what is going on. Listen, I want to encourage you to give some time to God. If you feel like there's a famine in your soul, if you feel like there's a dryness in your life, maybe you need to seek the Lord and go, God, what, it, what is going on? Why is this happening? David finds out there's an issue of reconciliation that needs to happen. Oh, I'm going to go to them immediately. There's something incredibly profound about that. There's something that's not f- fixed or reconciled or atoned for, and David's like, I got to go talk to them now immediately. There, there's a lot of wisdom just in this verse. Here's the thought to me even behind this. Um, Henry Blackaby said it in a different context, but I still think it's a profound kind of thought. He says, watch to see where God is working and join him in his work. That has been like a phrase that stuck with me for a while. Like, what, where is, what is God doing? Where is God working? How do I join him in that? For David, it, it was in the context of reconciliation. God, what's going on? What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Why, why do I feel like there's, there's a famine? What's off? Oh, okay, you want me to join in this work of reconciliation between our people and the Gibeonites? Okay, I'm there. He had to like, but he had to discern the time. He had to discern the moment. He had to discern the voice of the Lord. He had to seek him. I can't move on from this because, again, you might be feeling like, why am I currently going through this? Why do I feel this way? Why do I have this drought in my life? And it's like, maybe you need to just get away and press in and give God more than five minutes in the morning. Maybe there needs to be some time where like, okay, Lord, I'm really going to seek you out now on this point. See, what we see here, and I want to read now verse 1, verse 2, just one more time so you can kind of see something that's said here. The Lord said what? How, here's the Lord answers. Chapter, uh, verse 1, that second half. God says, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites. He, he took, wasted no time. He called the Gibeonites probably because he's there. Spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. By the way, this story is not recorded in the Samuels. We don't know, we don't know what this is about necessarily. We don't know why Saul did this. There's no story like outside of this. At one point in t- time, Saul's like, I'm going to strike them in the Gibeonites. That's all we really know. Here's my kind of theory behind this. If you remember in 1 Samuel 15, the big issue with Saul, God's like, Saul, wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites, like, you've always been at war with them. You're supposed to do this with Joshua. You're just, wipe them out. He didn't. He kept the king alive. He kept the livestock alive. And because of that, remember, God's like, I desire obedience. I don't want the lambs. I don't want the livestock. I, I desire obedience and not, and not offering. So he was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. He didn't. My theory is, he's like, well, I'll just wipe out the Gibeonites, right? He almost had the zealous thought of like, okay, let's just take out these people. I, did, I messed up here. We don't know when or how, but at some point in time, he thinks, I need to wipe these people out. It says, for the zeal, look at that phrase again. It says, his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. He had this like zeal for God, but it was a zeal God did not give him. It was a zeal, like, a ze- like this, like I'm zealous for God and for my people, but it was a wrong zeal. It's crazy how people can be zealous for things and God didn't even give you that zealousness. Like, it's crazy how we can be zealous for God and God's like, but I don't want you to be zealous for me in that way, right? There's a way to be zealous for God. We're actually, in, in scriptures, this is actually the first time the word zeal is used. You're like, what is this? Um, there's almost like, I'm committed and excited to do your will, God. Saul created this false thing that God wanted him to do this with the Gibeonites 
We're told in Revelation uh, 2, God speaking to the church, Revelation 3, God speaking to the church of Laodicea, he says, repent or be zealous and repent. Zeal- being zealous, for, it's so beautiful when you see a Christian who's like all in for God. That's so beautiful. But then you see Christians who are all in for God in like this weird way. And you're like, I don't know what that is. That's something different. We're like, you're standing on the street corner saying, burn in hell. Like, no, that's not the zeal we're talking about here. There's a zeal that comes from God and there's a zeal that comes from ourselves. Saul had this zeal that came from himself. In Titus chapter 2 verse 14, it says uh, Jesus, or it says Paul, or Paul wrote to Titus saying, who Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. There should be a zealousness for good works. There should be a repent and be zealous for God. Be all in, be excited, be excited to do his will, not just do it because you have to do it, but like, yes, Jesus, I'm yours and I'm all in. And I'm like, I'm excited about it. I, I'm not just doing it because I have to, I'm doing it because I get to and I want to. That is a beautiful thing. Saul created this false thing around him needing to destroy the Gibeonites. Now, the reason why I bring this up, uh, they're supposed to spare them. The history, just write down your Bible next to this, Joshua 9, Joshua 9. If you want to look at this verse, write down Joshua 9. If you guys remember, Joshua enters into the, the land of Cana, the promised land. As he's entering in, God's like, take the land. Anyone who's there, it's your land. Take it. You're supposed to take it. If the story with the Gibeonites is interesting. The Gibeonites actually dressed up and appeared to be like um, basically traveling into the land the same time as the nation of Israel is. Like they try to act like they weren't in the land. They were in the land, but they try to have this like false persona that like, we're just traveling through the land too. We're thinking about setting up a shop here too. And so Joshua's like, awesome. You're not from here. We don't have to drive you out. So Joshua made a covenant with them to spare them. Now they lied to Joshua. They lied to the people of Israel, but God's like, you made a covenant with them. You're going to honor that covenant. You promised to spare them, to protect them. They were always supposed to protect the Gibeonites from that point forward. They acted like they were not from around there, but they were from around there. They weren't just passing by. But they, anyways, from Joshua 9, there's a promise to them, like, we're going to protect you and your people forever. Right? They're in that covenant. They're in that promise. So they're supposed to spare them. Here's Saul, and he's like, I don't care what Joshua promised. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what God promised you. I'm gonna do what I want to do. What we see is actually God does care about promises, right? That's cool too. We might not think that's really cool, but that is. Isn't it great to know that if God promises something, he wants us to carry it out? Why does he want us to carry it out? Because he will carry it out. God's like, I care about covenants. We live in a really weird moment where covenants are just things we just do. We get married and we break the marriage. We do that easily, way too easily. We do it way too easily where we go, these are just words we say. We don't actually mean them. No, we're told from Jesus, let your yes be yes, your no be no. My point of just bringing this up is to say, hey, covenants matter, promises matter. God cares about that. Are we going to complete it perfectly? No, but we want to be an image bearer of God, a representation of God. God thankfully does not break his promise with us. God thankfully says, you're mine. I make a new covenant with you. I've entered into this with you. You're like, I'm my beloved. My beloved is mine. God's like, "Mm, you can't really break that. It's a covenant between us. I also died. My blood was shed to seal the deal for this covenant. So beautiful. Where I'm so thankful we have this beautiful covenant with God, but we see that God actually expects us, expects us to keep our promises. Another lesson we learned from this story, by the way, that even though Saul wanted to be zealous and do this thing, a simple way I just want to put it was good intentions don't excuse bad actions. He's trying to be zealous for God. He had a good intention, but it was not good. Your good intention does not excuse a bad action. One last thought here um, that I think is just important to note. God's correction may come a long time after the offense. This is actually powerful for me, like reading this text. Because I, I was actually like, I, I was probably like you when I first read it. I'm like, destroying the Gibeonites. Where was that? When was that? I'm trying to read like back. And I'm like, oh, this is like, this, we don't really have that story. But God is like, I'm going to bring this story up. I want to say this is an issue. Like God's one's like, I remember, David, there's an issue. Go, go to the Gibeonites. Call them, ask them what they want. 
it's so beautiful to know that God's like, you're not forgotten in this moment. I see it. I'm going to bring it to memory. So God's correction may come a long time after the offense. Saul commits genocide essentially on these people, tries to wipe them out, doesn't wipe all of them out. And God is like, and I don't forget. And I see you and I love you. The reason why I think this is beautiful, there's a warning to everyone here. This is not like, oh, shameful salt. This is a warning to all of us. Ecclesiastes chapter 811, listen to this verse. It says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That's a crazy, it's so true. It's like, wait, I got away with it? Maybe I'll try again. Maybe I'll get away with it again. And because judgment doesn't always come immediately, what does it do with the heart of man? The heart of children just becomes fully set to do evil. There is something about God's like, hey, I, I obviously see, I am going to hold you accountable to this. If you feel like, but they got away with it, in light of eternity, that will not happen. If you feel like, but they did this terrible thing to me, or my family, my person, I walked through this, whatever. Know this in light of eternity. God's like, no, I, I saw. I saw, I see. Whether he deals it with this side of eternity or the, that side of eternity, either way he's dealing with it, that's, Okay, Lord, I trust it in your hands. You see, David is wise enough, though, to discern the times and goes, hey, God, why, why is there a famine? What's going on? God's like, there's some reconciliation that needs to happen. This is profound to me. We'll keep reading, but number two is this. And this is just the second point I want to look at, and we'll, we'll kind of close out soon. Number two is this, dealing with the sin. Dealing with the sin. If you would look at verse three, because verse three, David's response to this is, is everything that we should do. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. This is where it gets confusing for us. This is where it gets frustrating to us. This we go, is this justice or is this something else? Like what is happening here? This is not an easy thing. I think this is a very nuanced kind of a thing that we're trying to approach here. Understand the people of Gibeah just walked, walked through essentially genocide. And now it seems like they're actually going, you know what? We don't want something crazy. Unjust. We don't want silver. We don't want gold. We don't want just any man. But we actually want his sons. He destroyed our sons. We want his sons. This is something I'm not going to say is easy. There is this Old Testament mindset. Obviously, it's different than the New Testament, but eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There is that kind of mindset happening. Not saying that in, in the New Testament, Jesus said, no longer shall you say eye for eye or tooth for tooth, but there was this mindset then. Uh, I love actually what Warren Wearsby said about this. He said, we today who have the New Testament and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ view this entire episode with mingled disgust and dismay, but we must keep in mind that we're dealing with law, not grace, and Israel, and not the church. There's not really a great way to approach this. I would say Lamentations 3 is really profound to me. It says, Lamentations 3, uh, the author, Jeremiah says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Here's the idea. Sin always leads to death, always. There's sin that led to death for the Gibeonites, now Saul's sin leads to death as well in a different context. But sin always leads to death. The fact that any of us are spared is the grace of God. Through his mercies, we're not consumed. The fact that anyone here gets to go on because sin leads to death. So there's a side of this where we go, man, this is hard for us. We don't fully get it or grasp it. 
but this is probably the only way for them, and David actually agrees to this. There's a question of, does God approve of this then, or is this just the best outcome? Not quite sure. I like what Matthew Henry said about this. He says, those executions must not be complained at as a cruel, which become necessary in the public welfare. Better that seven of Saul's bloody house be hanged than that Israel should be famished. The idea is, listen, all of Israel is suffering because of Saul's sins. People are probably dying from starvation. There's a drought in the land. Crops aren't being produced. What are the options here? Let me just say this. If you think, but they're innocent. They're innocent. Not necessarily. Verse one is a key to this text. I'm bringing this up for all of you who like kind of have that little lawyer in you. I get it. I'm not saying like, but they're innocent. Verse one actually says something profound. Look at verse one. There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The idea is it's most likely that Saul and his sons actually participated in this genocide. So before you're like, they're innocent. There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house. So most likely these sons participated to some extent. That's why I'm bringing this up for all of you little, you know, debaters, because I get it. I get it. Um, here's what we see. The, the Gibeonites say, silver or gold won't suffice. There needs to be blood. I think there is in this, like, heart of man. It's really weird. We as human beings, all of us here want justice and all of us here want mercy. I want mercy for me when I've done something wrong. But if I do something, like, you know, please give me mercy. But if something wrongs me, I want justice. And we all have this weird conflicting thing in us. Show me mercy, please. But if someone hurts me, like, God, give me justice right now. It's, we have this weird thing happening. Because we know when there's something that's been wrong, we know that there has to be a price that's paid. We want mercy, but there has to be a price that's paid, right? They're like, silver or gold is not enough. Blood has to be shed. Can I tell you, that, that claim or that thought is truly a biblical gospel thought. It says in 1 Peter 1.18, you have not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Those things come from your empty traditions, but you've been redeemed with the precious blood of the lamb who's without spot and without blemish. This idea that, you know what? I couldn't be bought with silver or gold. My sins were too great. There needs to be justice. Blood needs to be shed, my blood. But there was this great exchange that took place and Jesus' blood was shed on my behalf. This idea that sin always leads to death. There should always be blood that's shed. But ultimately say, yeah, this desire for not silver or gold, they're echoing this New Testament principle from Peterson. Yes, because you can't be. It's impossible. Gold and silver wealth could never fix the problems of the past. Gold, silver, wealth could never fix the problems of the past. Only blood. And the new covenant, that blood is Jesus's. That his blood says, you know what? Money can't fix this, but the blood of Jesus can. Can we get to the heart of the issue? The heart of the issue of past sins, can money fix that? The blood of Jesus can. The blood has to be shed. This is the idea. Blood is always shed for the atonement. Notice that David says that. He goes, for the atonement of my people, for the heritage of the I want God's name to be redeemed even among you. We're supposed to protect you. We didn't. We failed. I want the heritage of the Lord to go on. I want there to be atonement. This atonement word is an English word that we use. It's this Hebrew word, kafar, but the word atonement comes from like at one meant, like there's two parties that we now we want to be at one with each other. This idea of a covering, kafar, this covering, this blood that's shed for there to be covering, for there to be reconciliation, for there to be peace. There would never be reconciliation unless blood was shed. And some of these truths, as painful as they are, reveal to us a greater truth. There will never be reconciliation without the shedding of blood. As painful, as weird as the story is, it's pointing to a greater truth. Blood has to be shed for reconciliation. Thank you, Jesus. It was not my blood, the guilty party's blood that was shed. Thank you that it was your blood that was shed and your blood was shed innocently and willingly. You willingly shed your blood so there could be reconciliation. 
But blood is always shed for reconciliation. And ultimately, we boast in Jesus and say, Jesus, we are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus. As weird and as confusing and as, as bizarre as the story is, it's pulling out greater truths from our heart and our life that we all, we all long for justice, but we also want mercy. And the only way those two things can exist is the cross. Because on the, on the cross, justice was poured out and mercy was given. Because sin was dealt with and mercy is given to you and I. This idea of justice and mercy is, lives within all of us that is only satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why at, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we're all guilty and we're all redeemed. We're all filthy sinners and we're all made like Christ. No one is greater, not one person, not one race, not one anything. We're all guilty, fallen sinners at the cross and we're all also made redeemed and whole because of Jesus Christ and the cross. The cross is the only thing that can say, I've torn down this wall of separation that existed between Jews and Gentiles, between male and female, Greek and barbarian. All these walls, he says, you're all one in Christ Jesus because blood has been shed. The Gibeonites, the Israelites, the, this, oh, this reconciliation, because blood is shed, there can now be reconciliation. See, our only, just Jesus, thank you. That thank you because of your blood. Just our first father, Adam, sinned. And guess what? Just like the sons of Saul ex- experienced the repercussions, we experienced the repercussions of our father, Adam, his sin. I now walk through the pain of my father's sins in that sense. But the beautiful thing is Jesus, the last Adam, also covers me also invites me into something, also says that, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Blood has been shed. Sins have been paid for. Do you rest in that? That now every tribe, nation, tongue, people group come, and like we sung earlier, worthy is the lamb that was slain because of the blood of Jesus. This is the only thing that can reconcile us, blood being shed. J.D. Greer says this. He says, the fallout of sin is like that of a nuclear disaster. Its impact is immeasurable. I don't want to downplay this for a second because think about this. Dads, the the sin of Saul led to his son's demise. (laughs) The sins of the fall. And and here's the idea. We have to understand when we sin, it's not just a sin like, oh, just me. We have to see how it affects. It goes on and on. And here's the the point of this and why I'm bringing this up. There should be a sense of like horror from the story. I, I actually want to like, like, if you read this, you're like, this makes, this is good. This is easy for me, Josiah. It's a little weird to me. Um, you should have a little bit of like, oh, this is painful. This kind of brings up some, like, disgust. I don't like this. I don't like this story. That's okay. Can, can I tell you? We should all be horrified by the sin of what's happening here in, in every scenario. Because there's a side of this where we, I don't think we realize the horror of the cross. I don't think we realize the horror of our sin. Like, there's a side of it where it, we got to see, like, my sin caused the innocent son of God to die. Like, I should be horrified by that. There's a side of this where I don't know if sin does what it should. Like, there's something that sin should do. And it's actually a beautiful and it's a good thing. I should be disgusted, ashamed, horrified by my sin. And that's something that all of us should be. But know what it makes us do? It makes us run to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, even more for the cross. Because it's not like everyone else is guilty and I'm the sinless one. If you think you read the story and you're like, I've never sinned against anyone. No, you're not the Jesus in the story, okay? You're not the one in the story who's sinless, you are part of this guilty party because all of us have, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us should be horrified by our sin, not just this sin here. If you're more horrified by this sin and not your sin, then you're missing the gospel as well. You shouldn't read the story and be like, I can't believe they do that. No, me, I did that. Like, we can't believe we would entertain sin the way we do or enter it or sin, the things we said, the things we've done, the ways we acted. Don't think this is just shame on them. The idea is this should also horrify us, but about our sin, so we, we cling and we go, yes, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That should cause, to all of, and all of us, we go, yeah, I need that reconciliation. It's not that I'm, just, I'm the victim. No, you're also the one who sinned. You're also the guilty. 
You're not the, just the oppressed, you're the oppressor. All of us fall into that category. And all of us need the blood of Jesus. All of us realize, no, it's not just the sins against me, yes, but it's also the sins I've committed. Thank you for the cross. The cross sets me free again from the sins that have been committed against me and the sins I've committed against others. Nothing can do that but the cross. Nothing can do that but the shedding of blood. Here's what's interesting to me. What ha- would happen with the sons being hung on a hill? If you read in uh, 2 Samuel 21, verse 9, it says this in the New King James, they hang them on the hill before the Lord. They hang them on the hill before the Lord. Being hung publicly was a curse. To be hung publicly was literally a curse. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, listen to this. For he who is hanged is a curse of God. There was a curse on those who hung. And Paul is the one who makes the connection and says, but do you see what's happening? Like, I love this. This is the whole New Testament. Who was cursed? Who hung on a hill? Who hung on a hill? Jesus. Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us, for it, it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became the curse. Curse is everyone who hangs. Deuteronomy 21.23. If, if you hang, you're cursed. Who's the one that hung on a hill? Jesus. Jesus became a curse so you and I who are under the curse could be made free and set free from that same curse. I'm the cursed one. The, sin, the, the curse of sin affects me. The, the, the curse of sin in the garden, that, that it should be placed on my head, I should have swept by my brow, like all of the curse that was given to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent, the curse that came, Jesus bore that curse. He became a curse, it said. That's unbelievable. He became the curse, Galatians 3.13. That's how he set us free. It's cursed to hang on a hill. Jesus was the one who hung on a hill for you and for me. So we would no longer be under the curse. So we'd say by history, the crown of thorns that was placed on his head, this idea of thorns that would be part of the curse, the thistles that were part of the curse in Genesis 3, those thorns were placed on his head. He's undoing the curse. He's redeeming the curse. He's taking it all away and saying, I'm cursed. So now you could be set free. This is the gospel of Jesus. The sun's hung on a hill. Here in the story, we have a greater son who hung on a hill. His name is Jesus. The only way we can ever be reconciled to God is with the shedding of blood, and that is found in Jesus. And all we can say is, thank you, Jesus. Because you know what? The enemy wants us at war. The enemy wants us to be divided. The enemy wants us to look back in the past and the history. Silver or gold can't fix that, but the precious blood of Jesus can fix that. It's the only thing that can fix that. It's the only thing that can say, you've been sinned against. I've dealt with it. You've also sinned against. I've dealt with it. You are the victim and you're the guilty. You're both. The only thing that can satisfy that is the cross, saying thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Because nothing can satisfy the wrath of God other than the shedding of blood of sins for sins, and that is found in Jesus. I have three questions I just want to end with for you guys, and I want to take some time just to kind of pray over this um, as we read this story. Here's the first question. I would just ask that we be still, we be quiet, we take in these questions. Here's the first question. Is there right now a spiritual famine in your life? If there is, Why? And how do you need to address it? Do you look at your life right now and go, you know what? I've been really dry. I've, I've been famished. I don't feel like I'm hearing from God. I don't feel like I'm experiencing the rain, the goodness of God. Like, I don't feel like I'm experiencing that. Is there a famine? I feel like I want to encourage you like David, discover why and how do you need to address it? Is there someone you have sinned against and right now you need to go reconcile? David could have been like, that's not my sin, God. That's all sin. Sorry. But David's like, no, I'm going to answer into that. I'm going to try to figure this out. How do you not excuse it, dismiss it, diminish it? How do you not become disillusioned if you've been the one that's been sinned against? 
But is there someone right now in your life that you need to seek reconciliation with? Listen, is there spiritual famine in your life? How do you need to address it? My hope is that you'd give more than 30 seconds right now to that, that question. My hope is that you can get some time aside this week, this month, this next year we're hitting, that you say, you know what, I'm going to find out what is going on with me, God. Why is there famine in the land? What is it I need to address? Here's the next question. Um, has God called you to reconcile with someone, and have you been ignoring that call? Is there someone you're like, I've sinned against them, or they sinned against me, and you know what, I'll just move on from it, but it's truly in your life. You're not experiencing that fruitful season anymore. Notice that once blood was shed, once the sons were buried, once all that happened, then there was peace in the land, it says. Then the land began to heal. It's once that reconciliation happened, then there's healing. I love the idea in Matthew 5, because Jesus is like, listen, if someone sins against you, leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile. That's what David did. God, what's going on? Why is there a problem? God's like, there's a problem with the Gibeonites. Saul's sins of the past. David leaves the altar and is like, I got to fix this. Because you're not going to feel that peace. You're not going to have that fruitful season. That You're going to be in that dry season until that issue is reconciled. And lastly, is there someone you need to forgive? Maybe you have been sinning it. Maybe you're holding on to it. Maybe that root of bitterness is truly just destroying you internally. And God's like, man, you need to, if you want to be forgiven, forgive. If you want to experience that healing, you need to also give that healing. You need to give that. You need to let them go. You need to let them free. You need to release that from your heart. God's like, you want to experience forgiveness. You need to forgive. Maybe there's someone you're going, I need to just forgive. I truly need to release the debt that was committed against me, realizing that debt that was committed against me was nailed to the cross, that Jesus didn't just die die for my sin, but he died for their sin. That debt was nailed to the cross, and Jesus, I want to set them free from that because you set them free. How can I try to keep them in prison when the jail doors are open and you already let them go? All right, I want to set them free from that. I just want to give you guys some time to just kind of pray, to think, to explore. So would you just bow your head with me really quick? Close your eyes. Just spend some time with the Lord on some of these questions. It's that Psalm 139 prayer from David of, Lord, search me, know me, try me. You know my thoughts. You know my, my laying down, my rising up. God, you know. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, where, where, where's the problem? It's probably not someone else. <laughs> the problem is probably internal. It's probably you. It's me. It's my sin. God's like, I want to get to that. It's not someone else's. I'll deal with them, but I want to deal with you. Let the Holy Spirit deal with you. Let the Holy Spirit deal with them. Let, let God be God in this moment. So let's pray and let's just kind of worship and kind of talk and confess and just kind of turn this into more just a time where we can give some space for the Lord. Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you that by your stripes we are healed. God, because I am, I am a sinner as well. I've hurt and still hurt and still sin. And Jesus, I need the blood today. I need forgiveness today. This is not for me some time ago or in the past. This is Jesus. I need it today. I just want to thank you, God, that you have sought us, that you have sought reconciliation with us, that the only reason we love you is because you first loved us, that no one here has ever loved you first, that God, you've loved us first, you pursued us, that you said, even though you're guilty, I will give my body and my blood. Thank you, Jesus, for that. God, I just ask if anyone here has not experienced the freedom that is found in Jesus, that they would do so today. That Jesus, we cling to the truth that you have come to give life and life more abundantly. And the enemy is trying to steal and kill and destroy our lives. But Jesus, you want to give life and life abundant. And so I ask that we would experience that in you, Jesus. If we have been running, 
if we have been dry, if we have been in a season of famine, God, that you would restore, that you'd heal the land, that we'd seek reconciliation first and foremost with you. God, that you have given myself and everyone in this room, we have the same ministry, the ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the world to you, God. And we just want to do that through your son, Jesus. We thank you. We need you. We want to worship you. Address those unconfessed things in our heart. Just address those things that are still holding us back and we hope we can experience freedom in you. We trust we will. We look to you now, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Listen, if you guys want to stand, if you want to sit, if you want to come up for prayer, if you want, whatever you want, we want to kind of make this time open for the Holy Spirit to do work in you. So sing, shout, sit, kneel, come up for prayer. Let's just close our time by worshiping the Lord, all right?